Hello, fellow travelers. This is Luke, the host of the Rules Lawyers podcast, coming at you with a very unique and exciting episode. This is definitely an exciting episode where I'm going to be doing a solo run. This is very strange for me. I typically don't do a solo recording of an actual episode. Anytime I ever do any solo recordings, it's maybe for like a couple of minutes during the midway break of any other episode that I do. But every other episode I've ever done has been with my friends or like at least two other people probably. So this is going to kind of be a strange one. Just bear with me on it. I hope that it is fun and enjoyable. This is a, a topic that I think there are more people than one might anticipate who enjoy this sort of thinking, enjoy the sort of like lens that you see the world through after you play a lot of like Dungeons and Dragons slash role playing game game. After you play the one role playing game, which is Dungeons and Dragons, don't be fooled. There aren't any other ones. The idea behind this is you might be able to tell by like where I, you might have seen it or the title of it. I want to do a comparison and a contrasting <laughs> uh, of both Dungeons and Dragons, like both in the lore and maybe like the, the themes as uh, in compare contrasting to the World of Ice and Fire or A Song of Ice and Fire, the intellectual property story of one of my all-time favorite authors, George R.R. R. Martin. Just to kind of give you a bit of a background on my history with both, in case this is maybe your first time listening to it, assuming anyone listens to this at all, I have been playing for Dungeons... I've been playing for the Dungeons & Dragons US team for, <laughs> since like uh, 2015, I think, so relatively new to the hobby and the community. And I've been doing this podcast for like a couple of years where we do some actual play and more recently more discussion but my background on, oh, and I should probably say I both DM and play. I enjoy both of them very much. I might say I enjoy playing ever so slightly more, but I don't get that opportunity all too much. I often find myself DMing, which I have a, I have a good time doing. Both books and the special like once or twice a year homebrew events that I do. In terms of the A Song of Ice and Fire, I first actually tried reading a Game of Thrones when I was in like seventh grade. And let me tell you, a lot of it went over my head. I did finish the book. I read the entire book and I maybe retained like 3% of anything that was going on. It was definitely far beyond me, the the whole concept, even like the basic story. Uh, but now as I've gotten older, I've gotten back into them. In the past couple of years, I reread the books and I got way into like The World of Ice and Fire, arguably my favorite book. I haven't read any of like, the Duncan Egg short stories, but I know a fair amount about them. They're coming up on the docket at some point. I want to read them, hopefully soon. So I want to do kind of like a comparison of themes and even maybe like mechanics with D&D, &D, uh, as well as like a thing that I think a lot of people do once they get into Dungeons and Dragons, which is you look at a character such as Jon Snow or maybe even like Harry Dresden if we're getting into other stories and you like stat them out in terms of their classes. That's something I think everyone kind of gets into once you, you know, it's a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram of nerd books and nerd games. I feel like a lot of people who read A Song of Ice and Fire have played D&D and vice versa. But let me tell you, I do have one guest with me. I got my puppy. I got JC Lickums here. Uh, she's sitting right next to me. If you listen real close and you turn up the volume, you can hear her panting. You can hear her licking herself, just making all sorts of puppy dog noises. 
She might be chewing on her little antler. She's been way into that. Chewing on the pillow. I'm going to yell at her if she does that. Uh, we just got back from a walk. And uh, side note, I do not have my standard activity tennis shoes anymore. I left them at a friend's house in a, a town about an hour and a half away. And I've just been wearing like these old shitty pseudo converse with uh, some fucking high art support insoles into the shoes. And let me tell you, even if I had three more of those fucking pairs of insoles, my feet would still just give me so much pain. They hurt really bad. And don't even get me started on my knees and my hips. My hips feel fucking bad. My hips feel terrible. That might just be an indication of my poor walking and activity form. Might be an indication of my shit shoes that I'm wearing. And the fact that I'm getting old. So me getting old also plays into some of the recent events that have transpired in a couple of episodes ago, which, fuck, that was a long time ago that that was published. Uh, I revealed to my podcast peeps and the world at large that I'm going to be a father. And some recent development has come out of that. Uh, if you'll indulge me until I get into the real meat and potatoes of this episode. It has been since understood five days ago, it was revealed to me at the ultrasound that I am going to be having not one, but two baby girls. They will be my first children. And I'm getting two right off the bat. They're going to be twins. And I can only assume it's going to be fucking awesome. I can only assume. I can only pray. I can only just try to trick myself and just force it through my will that it's going to be a great, pleasant experience. There's going to be a point in time when I kind of just bounce off the face of the earth. I'm going to go into my own little pocket dimension, which is my house, uh, especially when they're born, because it's going to be early November, when you know, probably the latest, early November, maybe late October, and I'm going to be in there, in here, in my house for the winter. No one's going to fucking see me. I'm just going to go in and out of work like a ghost, like a phantom that haunts the Buke. I'll be a memory by the time I resurface. My beard is going to be so fucking long. And I'm going to look probably 30 years older. Gray hairs visible through my red beard and my blonde hair. It's crow's feet. I'm going to gain like 40 pounds. And it's going to be the best time of my life before I can really like rejoin society. Uh, once spring comes about, you'll see me emerge like a flower, but I'm going to be like an old ass, nasty, fat flower. So that kind of explains why uh, episodes have been pretty sparse lately. Uh, I kind of got a little self-revealing. I got a little real in the most recent episode, basically saying that I was fairly well depressed because Lily was super sick and I felt real bad that I couldn't do anything to help her. I had to pick up a lot of extra work to make up for her not being able to and missing, which again, I'd, I'd do it all over again. I love her with all my heart, but not gonna lie, it was very stressful and I just want, I felt bad for her. I, I was kind of concerned with her health and it was a scary thing having your significant other go through that kind of difficult, stressful ordeal that you, you can't you know, I, I can't like lift something a bunch and make it better or I can't like take the pain away from her and I just kind of had to deal with it and take care of the house and the puppy and the, the kitty cats, which are they're around here somewhere. Do they run away? I haven't seen them in a while. I, they're, they're probably around. They're probably not too hungry, I hope. That's kind of been me right now. That's been my, my shit. Well, I guess, you know, I'm going to do a quick update that I kind of do in the midway break because I think I'm just going to power through in one take the whole fucking thing all the way through. So this little intro 
is going to be the what I normally do in the midway break, if you're familiar with that. I typically give my book update. I finished not too long ago Fire and Blood. So this kind of relates back to the Song of Ice and Fire stuff that we're going to be getting into. I have not only read the, the main five books, I've also read a song, of, or jeez, I've read The World of Ice and Fire. I now own that, which I, I love that. Probably my favorite book in the entire uh, story of Song of Ice and Fire, mainly because I think my favorite part of Mr. Martin's work is his world building. I very much love the world building. I love his awesome references to Lovecraftian lore. I, I'm a big fan of his other nods to other lore and uh, real world mythology. I do just some of the motifs he's got of like, uh, you know, going off the far edges of the known map where it gets freakier and weirder, where monster here there'd be blah, blah, blah. You, you get that whole thing. It's very, very, very good. I like how he plays with his, um, with like archetypes throughout the entire world, not just in Westeros and not just like the known part of Essos, but getting into weird parts of like Sothorios where it's kind of like a pulp Conan, the barbarian sort of feel. And then of course you got Ulthos. I think, uh, yeah, there's not much known about that from what I remember. Right, JC? Yeah, you're whining. Yeah, you're always fucking whining, aren't you? You're a good girl. I read that and a world of, I read both the World of Ice of Fire and Fire and Blood uh, I read both those around the same time, and it was great. I loved it. Fire and Blood was kind of a bit of a dry read. Needed to take that one down with a glass of milk. But I really enjoyed a lot of it. I got a little tired of it at the end. Got a little tired of it at the end. I really enjoyed a lot of the Oaken Fist stuff. I should probably preface... I should have, should have prefaced this like 10 minutes ago when I started recording. I, there's going to be a lot of names that I am not going to remember. I'm going to fuck up a lot of stuff. I'm going to probably say a lot of details that people who may or may not be listening to this will say, oh, Dark Luke, that happened in 158 AC instead of the, the lack of number that you gave. It's not going to happen. I have actually been listening to a lot of content creators uh, from folks in the Song of Ice and Fire community. I'm a huge fan of Ideas of Ice and Fire. Uh, I really like In Deep Geek. He's great. I really like the podcast, The History of Westeros and Radio Westeros. Those guys are amazing. But uh, I will just let you know, I do not have the comprehensive knowledge that they do. They know their shit, and they are very... De- they also probably do a lot of prep work, which I am not going to be doing. This is all going to be more or less off the dome. This is some handful of loose handwritten notes that I've done over the like the last day, and just kind of my, my musings and remembrances of things. I'm going to have some real vague details on stuff. It's not going to be as in-deep as those guys, just kind of a fair warning. What was I saying before I went on like three different side tangents in a row? Uh, the, oh, the book update. Yeah, so now that I'm done with those two Song of Ice and Fire books, I'm taking a bit of a break from the high fantasy slash low fan- epic long book fantasy of uh, Song of Ice and Fire, and I'm reading It Devours, a Welcome to Night Vale novel, which is very, very good. I really like Welcome to Night Vale, and uh, this is the first novel I've read of it. I've actually had a free t-shirt of It Devours for a long time, and I've been meaning to read the book. Both that, Song of Us and Fire, and a really cool uh, library card satchel were my Father's Day gift from my wonderful wife, Lily. And that was back before we knew we had twins, and if we would have known better, she could have just gotten me like a, like a coupon for a free foot rub, which she wouldn't have allowed me to cash in. That would have been the wise move. That would have been the, financial, the, the fiscally financial move. But say la vie. Other updates on my life besides the twins. 
which is probably going to be like a word vomit element to my vocabulary for quite some time. Really into waffles now, in case anybody's wondering. I've been eating a decent amount of waffles. That's uh, where I'm at diet-wise. Still trying to get a little bit of exercise in here and there, but uh, surprisingly, kind of not feeling it. I'm trying to train my body to only need five hours of sleep a night. That's in progress. Uh, I should probably train it, slim that down to a tight 3.30, knowing that I'm going to have these uh, little angels screaming in my fucking ear all night long for, I can only assume, the foreseeable future. Hi, I'm Tessa. And I'm Elliot. And this is Tessa and Elliot Argue. Do you like weird headlines? Guy on Ambien accidentally proposes to girlfriend, wakes up and doesn't remember any of it. Florida gun owners plan to shoot at Hurricane Irma. Plane forced to turn back after mother forgets newborn at airport. If any of this caught your attention, you can find us at TessaElliotArgue.com. We come out every Sunday morning. Check us out. So, with that all being said, let's get into some ideas I have with a comparison and a contrasting of A Song of Ice and Fire and Dungeons and Dragons. This is actually another quick side to- topic before I get into it. I do want to do other videos like this where I maybe go into Dresden Files. I guess maybe Lord of the Rings. I know a decent amount about Lord of the Rings. I've read The Silmarillion a handful of times. I, you know, I feel like that one's a little overplayed, but we could always do that. Maybe even the works of Brandon Sanderson. You got the Stormlight Archive. You've got Mistborn. I know there's, there's a lot of comparisons that way, so I wouldn't mind having a discussion based series of episodes all around comparisons of uh, of viewing those sort of fantasy sci-fi IP stories through the lens of uh, Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. Uh, most of what I'm telling you is from 5th edition. Don't really know any other edition. I'm pretty sure that's kind of the general vibe of the, the zeitgeist right now anyway, so no one's going to hate on me for that. I kind of want to break it down into uh, maybe going through the I kind of want to have like two main sections. Like the first part, I'll talk about characters, uh, like important, like what you might consider a PC, and stat them out in terms of their classes. Uh, and then not only that, but then talk about world building highlights in general. More than likely, they're just both Dungeons and Dragons and George R. R. Martin. They both kind of borrowed from uh, like a motif or a, a uh, an idea or uh, an archetype that's kind of been floating around the fantasy sci-fi realm since the good old days of Grandpa Tolkien, even before that into just the classic myth and legend. Yeah, there's JC gnawing on her bone. Just imagine there's a troll eating the bone of a, of a young... <laughs> I don't want to say baby, because I'm going to have some... I'm going to have babies. Uh, it's not a baby-eating troll... This troll eats an old old men, exclusively old men that were never twins. This troll is eating the bones of an old, old man who got lost in the woods, and he couldn't outrun the troll. The babies got away, but the old man sacrificed himself to save my babies, and now the troll's eating them. I want that to be the vibe, and I want that to be the, 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 the picture that you're imagining when I'm talking about this important content. So I think first I'm going to hit up with comparing... And I want to go through the list in alphabetical order as they appear in the player's handbook in terms of the player character classes. Uh, talk about characters that would maybe fit that. Some of them fit a lot better than others. Some of these just don't fit in a world of ice and fire, which makes a lot of sense. There's not going to be any 
Oh, the troll dropped an old man bone. I think that was his um, his pelvic bone. He, he the troll ate that whole part up. Now the troll's looking sad because she dropped it off the couch. Don't fucking whine at me. Pick it up. Troll dog. So yeah, like I was saying, there's not going to be perfect overlap with character classes and just the world of Ice and Fire itself. Being that it's like a the world of Ice and Fire is a relatively low magic setting or at the very least it currently is in the current age that we're in uh 300 and something ac again i'm not gonna know super detailed information arguably more you know back when the valerians were in their height there was a uh, a lot more magic going on they were kind of cranking out weapons left and right uh valerian steel uh the glass candles all that fancy bullshit uh but nowadays it's there's not a whole lot of magic there's some and there's more than people would probably understand or assume if you were like a layperson living in the world, but uh, there's not nearly as much as there used to be. So with that being said, the first class in the PHB is a bard, a full caster. There aren't, by my like recollections, any pure examples of a bard that there are, like say the Forgotten Realms in you know your Eberron, your Greyhawk. I never played in Greyhawk, I never did any of that. Uh, we'll stick Forgotten Realms for now. Bards, obviously, use magic via song. They use the vibrations of like their magical voices to tweak the world and cast spells. That's a real like gutter explanation for what a bard is. There are too many pure examples that I could really think of. I wrote down a handful that I thought were kind of in there. Oh, I just dropped a femur bone of an old man, the troll did. And now the troll's gonna, yep, the troll's gonna complain that she dropped the femur bone off the couch. You're just gonna have to pick that one up, troll. Uh, yeah, so a couple of examples that I wrote down for Bard. I wrote Tyrion, and I honestly don't know why I did that. Tyrion really doesn't fit that motif. He's a tricky word guy, maybe just because of his general charisma. That's kind of the only reason I got, he's, he's kind of got like a Scanlan shorthold, if you're familiar with Critical Role vibe. Only because he's good with words and he's very convincing and charismatic. But there's really nothing involved with music. I don't think Tyrion can play music. I don't think there's been anything in the story suggesting that he's a musician. Not a great example. But, of course, we uh, we have Mance Raider. He can play the harp, if I recall correctly. He's a, a musical guy. But, again, no magic really involved with him. He's not really related to magic at all. Uh, at least of his own casting. Then we actually have... A, uh, we have a couple of bards named in the story. There's Bale the Bard, who was a, a classic uh, figure of legend in World of Ice and Fire. Again, I don't think he cast any actual spells, but he's an extremely clever fella. Very good with music, and I believe he, you know, depending on who you talk to, north or south of the wall, either stole a Stark daughter or seduced one. So we have Bale the Bard. There's also the Blue Bard and... It's been a while since I actually read the books, but I believe he was the guy who Cersei, more or less, forced confessions, had seduced Marjorie or they were banging, something to that nature. Again, not a magical user, not someone whose music is influencing any sort of magic, but being that they call him the Blue Bard, I feel like he's worth a mention, being that we're talking about bards. There is the guy from the Brotherhood uh, Without Banners, Tom07 Streams, and I think also called Tom07 Strings. 
he might be his only loose association is that he's hanging out with Lady Stoneheart at the end of the book. So she's definitely got some sort of supernatural magical elements with her. Again, he's probably not casting any spells, but he is a musician. So he's worth mentioning. Uh, there's two other ones that I think actually might have some sort of magical connection with their music, though. And they're probably better examples of, well, one of them more than the other. We have uh, Mary Mazdur, and we all know that she was the one who was, you know, had her hand in helping awaken the Tira, Daenerys' dragons. She was a moon singer, and I think it might be argued that moon singers could, in theory, through the correct lens, be viewed as a bard, possibly, uh, because they presumably cast spells through singing. Uh, that also kind of gets into the realm of spells being sung, which I also think the Children of the Forest, when they called down the Hammer of the Waters both times, it was like a they gathered in song, I think it might have been mentioned. So there are some examples of spells and magic being practiced through song. I don't think that happens all the time. I don't know if anytime someone's casting magic in a world of ice and fire, it has to be song or music related. But those are some pretty big examples of that happening. Uh, the, being the moon singers and the children of the forest doing that, that nasty shit, sacrificing their kids and, and elders and, uh, and other beings to, to bring down big old hammers, killing people, separating the breaking the arm. And one last one, I think might be possibly the best example of a bard from a D&D standpoint in World of Ice and Fire would be Rhaegar Targaryen himself. He is tied to magic. I don't know if it's through his music. The one thing that I do kind of believe that he did was that he... I, I've heard some people speculating about this. I don't think it's straight up said in the books. I think it is insinuated that he would talk to, I believe it was the Ghost of Highheart. Pretty sure it was her. He would give her payments for like her prophecies with his music. And that, I guess, kind of is relating his music to magic. And uh, he was very much into prophecy, um, a mystical figure himself, uh, you know, presumably the father of the prince that was promised. He was a very happy, delightful fella, very charismatic, loved by all for the most part, you know, except for, your, for old Bobby B. And he played like the harp and the music, and uh, he was actually a pretty accomplished fighter. So you might consider, if we're going into subclass territory of Dungeons and Dragons, you might consider Rhaegar Targaryen to be like a Valor Bard. That is probably the closest thing that I could get to in terms of bards in the World of Ice and Fire. Quick overview, as much of this is going to be because we have quite a few classes to go through yet. The next is going to be a Barbarian. Now this class is a lot more easy to view in the World of Ice and Fire. They don't typically have anything to do with magic. You might say there's some technical nuances there with uh, some ritual casting, but for the most part, barbarians ain't casting no magic. They're big, strong, rough boys who are swinging axes and drinking and fucking a whole bunch. And we got plenty of that in the world of Ice and Fire. Uh, I think the two biggest examples of this are clearly called Drogo. You know, he's... You know, he, he's right up there, kind of like in your Conan-esque barbarian. Pretty clear example of a barbarian there. No armor, running around, maybe some sort of specialized barbarian that rides horses, but 
at his, at his core, Khal Drogo's clearly a barbarian. And then, yeah, Tormund Giantsbane. I think he's a pretty clear example of a barbarian as well. I guess he wears, like, leathers and things to keep from being too cold up in the north. But he is, in my opinion, more of a barbarian than anything else. A couple other honorable mentions, I think, for barbarians might be Strong Belwas. I think he's actually a, he's pretty clearly a barbarian. Un unarmored, just a big constituted hardy guy, or at least he used to be, not so much anymore. And maybe, arguably, the mountain, good old uh, Gregor Clegane, he might be more on the barbarian side of the territory, maybe like a multi-class barbarian fighter. And I'm going to get into the Hound later on, where he might be the inverse. But the mountain who rides, I think he's more of a brute, less of a technical fighter, and therefore would probably be under the, the barbarian category. Next on the list of main classes would be Cleric. And I think there's actually a couple of really, really good examples in A Song of Ice and Fire. And we can almost even get into subclasses, at least for a couple of really one specific subclass. Uh, the main clerics that I'm thinking of would be Melisandre. I think she might even dip into a couple other classes as well, possibly a sorcerer, maybe even wizard, uh, due to her having to learn magic as opposed to it being inherent or granted to her. Uh, by a deity, which she most certainly has that with the Lord of Light. Melisandre, and also these next ones, we got Makoro, obviously, and Thoros of Mir. All three of those guys are, and Lady, obviously, they are clear examples of a light cleric. That's straight up from the Player's Handbook. A god that is centered on light, uh, fire as a, as a big motif. I would be pretty shocked if someone told me that Wizards wasn't influenced directly by George R. R. Martin in developing the Light Cleric. I guess I don't know if that was a thing that existed in previous editions, but I feel like Melisandre, Thoros of Mir, R'hllor himself, I feel like that had a big influence in the Light Cleric uh, when the Wizards team was, was making that. The other example I can think of a Cleric might be maybe like the priests from the Iron Islands, but again, they don't really exhibit any powers. I feel like a mainstay of a cleric being a full-on magic caster is you're actually casting some magic. And while there are, you know, uh, priests of the Drowned God, as far as I can tell, they're not gaining any actual magical abilities, anything supernatural. Not, not that's readily apparent from, uh, from my weak mind. The only other one that I can think gives a... is hinted at with having powers. It was the priest, and I can't... Fuck, I can't remember his name. It was on the Silent... The Quiet Isle? And I forget what they're called, their their order, but I think it was insinuated that he knows magical healing properties. Uh, that's the one where the Hound is very heavily insinuated that he's ending up um, after his arc. Yeah, whether or not the Hound is done uh, with his arc and he's hanging out in the, I believe it's called the Quiet Isle. Sorry, don't don't kill me. I totally forgot. Uh, I believe the head of that order, he has some sort of magical healing ability. So he might be the closest example we have to a life cleric. Um, anyone else who's like a healer, as far as I can tell, they're not really using much magic unless I'm missing anything obvious or any obvious characters. They're all just kind of using techniques. Um, maybe some like moon singing, I guess. I think that might be a form of healing, I think. But yeah, Melisandre, Makoro, Thoros of Mir are about our, our clearest examples of clerics that are actually getting physical manifestations of like magical powers from their god being R'hllor, the Lord of Light. Next up on the class list, we have Druid. Uh, this is another one that we have some pretty clear examples of. Not a whole lot of examples. 
We actually kind of do. We actually have a decent amount of a decent amount of uh, examples here. Big examples are obviously Bran and Bloodraven. These guys are very connected to nature, and they can uh, they can warg, which is you know they even call it skin changing. This is a, a form of shape shifting, or if you view it from a certain lens, uh, hopping into the skin of an animal, and I guess also in theory the the mind of a man. But this is about as close as we get in a world of ice and fire to changing into a a bird or a bear. Uh, there's a bunch of examples of obviously warging into wolves. All the Stark children can presumably do this. There's a oh boy, Vormir, Vormir, Vormir six. Six skins, I believe his name was. Yeah, he's a pretty good example. There was the guy, and holy fuck, I can't remember his name, but he had had that big, nasty, stinky boar that Jon Snow didn't seem to like all too much. I can't remember his name. Uh, they all are fairly good examples of druids, but I think the, the best example are, are Bran and Bloodraven being able to see through the eyes of the werewoods. That's a, a, you know, a pretty clear example of a druid. Like I mentioned, I think all of the Stark children have like maybe one level dip into Druid, but clearly the big one is Bran, and the next one would probably end up being John, arguably. Uh, I don't think there's really any good examples of subclasses. We don't get too many good examples of subclasses, which makes sense. Uh, George R. R. Martin isn't going to concern himself with getting into specifics of these sort of things. Uh, the uh, I feel like the Wizards team is pulling from a lot of different stuff, but Martin's more overlapping with some of the general fantasy tropes. So no good, really, examples that i found so far of subclasses besides Cleric. But uh, getting into Fighter, I think we have some pretty good examples of this. Obviously, Fighters, unless you're like an Eldritch Knight type, you're not casting too many magic. You're uh, like more of a technical fighter as opposed to Barbarian, which is more of a big, strong brute who takes a lot of hits. A fighter is more of a technical martial prowess-based combatant. We got a lot of good examples here. Uh, Oberyn Martell, I think, is a really cool, non-traditional fighter that we see here in the World of Ice and Fire. Don't know if he if he has like an actual subclass. Uh, it might be argued that he could be uh, maybe maybe he's got polearm master as a feat, not necessarily a subclass, but I guess you can view it through that lens. I also say Jorah Mormont. He's a pretty classic example of a fighter. I don't think you could really argue argue his paladin. He's more of a fighter. Grey Worm, another great example of a fighter, just a straight up uh, battle master. Maybe champion fighter in there. Those are a little more classic, but they are uh, pretty apparent. Those are some pretty strong parallels you can be seen there. And then I mentioned it before, but I think the Hound is definitely more of a fighter. Maybe a bit of a barbarian because he's got some anger issues for sure. I, he might be able to tap into rage. He's, I think, the inverse of the Mountain where the mountain is more barbarian with a dash of fighter, I'd say the hound is more fighter with a dash of barbarian. So those are some pretty clear examples of that right there. Now, the next one in the player's handbook for main classes is a monk. And there aren't very many examples that I can think of of a monk, uh, at least in the typical dunge uh, the Dungeons and Dragons Forgotten Realms version of what you consider a monk, kind of like a Bruce Lee martial arts my personal hero, Jackie Chan, they, uh, you don't get a whole lot of that in World of Ice and Fire. I, the only things I could think of off the top of my head, again, not being an expert like other people who who actually do this well and do a good job of this, I do believe Thoros of Mir is at one point or a couple of points called the Mad Monk because he lights his sword on fire. And again, he's definitely more of a light cleric. He's not a monk in terms of like a, 
kung fu, throwing shurikens, uh, martial arts, karate chop type of guy. I guess one could imagine maybe that the people of E.T. might have had this just based on the general motif of E.T. kind of being like an Asiatic culture. But again, that's literally me just quite possibly being racist. I, and if I am, I apologize. I This is me just assuming that they have some kung fu fighters over there being uh, what E.T. is based off of from, from real world influences. Now, the next one would be Paladin. I think we actually do have some really good examples of Paladins. There aren't, you know, in, uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, we get a lot of magic involved with Paladins. Obviously granted by like a, a deity, uh, there's like a lot of auras they exude from like the charisma, but they do have magical manifestations. There really isn't a lot of that in A Song of Ice and Fire, maybe a few examples, but we're kind of getting into Paladin territory based on the classic idea or archetype of a paladin based on their oaths and based on like the life they try to live and the the, the loyalty and the ideals they try to exude we got a couple good examples of that i feel like the obvious one is brienne of tarth she's very much into oaths she's clearly your typical lawful good paladin uh the one caveat of her being that she is a woman gender aside, which it really shouldn't matter anyway, she's very clearly a, an, an upstanding noble knight. You also have Barristan the Bold. He's definitely along those lines with Brienne as well. I'd, I'd argue that Jaime uh, Lannister uh, is a is a paladin, at least later on. He's definitely a fighter in the beginning of his arc, but you can also, you know, as he progresses, you could maybe view him as a redemption paladin. Uh, redemption paladin, obviously, coming out of Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Quite possibly my favorite supplemental book to Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you could also even say Brienne and Barristan are. Uh, fuck, you can tell I never play Paladins. What's the, uh, the the main one? The main Paladin subclass. Fuck, I'm gonna forget it. Not the Oath of the Ancients. Not. Holy shit, I cannot even remember it. That's how little I play Paladins. I don't think I I have one Paladin that I played like twice. He was an Oath of the Ancients. He was a big goof-off character. Oath of Devotion. A Devotion Paladin? Is that what it is? Uh, you know, the, the lawful good, typical ones. You could say Brienne and Barristan are that. I'd argue Jamie's a Redemption Paladin along with probably some fighter. The, this one might be uh, kind of splitting hairs or getting a little too in the weeds of it, but I could one could say that a Red Paladin might be Lyanna Stark as uh, the Knight of the Laughing Tree during the events of the Tourney of Her Harrenhal. Tourney of Harrenhal? Yeah, the Tourney of... Yeah, the Tourney of Harrenhal. She definitely has that laughing knight, kind of like a green man motif going on, which I feel is being uh, exuded in Dungeons & Dragons through that, uh, the Oath of the Ancients Paladin. Probably, maybe not taking that directly from George in their inspiration. I think they're more taking it from the general green man, horn man myth in like Celtic, I believe, lore. But I could argue, you could argue that she's doing some paladin shit right there, and she's kind of fitting that Oath of the Ancients Green Man motif, which is very cool. I, I like that. That's one of my favorite, pretty much confirmed theories in a world of Ice and, Song of Ice and Fire. I like that one a lot. One of my favorite stories, uh, Leanna defending Helen Reed, then obviously connecting up with uh, Rhaegar at some point in that whole mix. The next class we have... And the list is Ranger. Now, this one, we obviously got, uh, we can pull a lot from this one. There's even a lot of 
there's a position in the Night's Watch called Rangers. People go out ranging. That's a, a pretty obvious one for this one is Jon Snow. Again, we can actually get into a subclass with, with good old Jon Snow. We could probably get into like maybe a few classes with Jon Snow. Uh, but I feel Jon Snow's main class, and some could argue, but if he were to be a multi-class character, uh, a PC in Dungeons and Dragons, again, I don't know exactly what levels, but most of his levels would be in Beastmaster Ranger. I feel like Ghost kind of goes a little bit by the wayside later on. And, you know, if we're talking the abortion of a show, what it ended up being, that's a separate thing that I could talk about entirely. Ghost goes entirely by the wayside. But in the books, he kind of he kind of renounces Ghost uh, or denounces whatever the word is. He kind of pushes him away because he's afraid of his warging abilities. And that gets me into his second class. I believe he's got a, at least a level or two of Druid dipped in there. Being that he can do his uh, his warging shit, as all the Stark children can do. And then also, he's got a decent amount of fighter in there. He's a pretty good, you know, martial prowess guy. I don't... You could almost maybe give him Paladin, because he did swear some oaths to the Night Watch. Maybe it could be argued for Paladin. Uh, John is obviously a very complicated character, and it would make sense that he's a, you know, multi-class, in my opinion, at least into three, maybe even four uh, <laughs> classes. Uh, you know, being one of the main characters, it makes sense that he's going to have a whole lot going on there. But as far as Rangers, we, I mean, there's Benjamin Stark. He's clearly like a, a prime example of a what one might understand as a pure Ranger. I'd, I'd give him like maybe a Hunter Ranger. I don't, you know, I, I can't remember all the different Ranger subclasses from Xanathar's or other source material, but I feel like he's getting into like Hunter Ranger territory. Next up, we have Rogues and rogues i feel are another one that you can get a decent amount of examples of in this book here there's no arcane tricksters well you know maybe you can maybe consider aria uh arcane trickster it just i know it's not quite the same thing with her her face changing it's not quite an illusion because she actually is putting on a face like a, a physical transformation as opposed to a glamour which is more of the arcane tricksters gimmick uh, but Arya is clearly a rogue. There's pretty no, uh, there, there's definitely no, no arguments about that. You know, she might be getting into arcane tricks territory, at least in flavor. Maybe not so much like a mechanic. Uh, maybe, maybe cleric, maybe trickery cleric. And that's actually brings me back to, I, I in my notes, I forgot to write this down, but one could argue that uh, Jake and Hagar, or possibly like the kindly man, whether or not, they're the same person they uh or even just the people who are the the faceless men themselves one could argue some trickery cleric stuff in there they're obviously serving the the many-faced god and he's clearly a, a god of death you're i guess there's even that like death cleric example from the dmg that is a uh that's a thing that one might draw some parallels to kind of easy to miss i guess if you're going to place the faceless men anywhere on like a, a pc class list i'd give him trickery cleric or maybe the the death cleric but uh was a real quick back to rogue one could argue probably davos you know he's kind of like a pirate sneaky smuggler type you know maybe he's like a, a swashbuckler rogue kind of i guess i don't i don't remember him being too well known for his like rakish audacity or his uh his jack sparrow presence but he's kind of got some of that you can you can see that from a distance if you squint. Maybe he's like a, a swashbuckler rogue. 
And one could also even say, in terms of a mastermind rogue, one might say Varus and Littlefinger. They're very much mastermindy. There's no doubt about that. Again, they're not getting sneak attacks and they're not hiding or uh, doing any of that kind of jazz, but they are very much, you know, we all know what their gimmick is. Uh, I say there's some pretty clear mastermind rogue things behind that. They're not hopping in the fray, but again, they're not going to have any perfect parallels besides the few that we have. Next up, we have sorcerers. And, you know, I think I mentioned it before, one could argue depending on how she got her powers, maybe Melisandre might have a little bit of a shadow sorcerer from Xanathar's in her. I don't think that's her main thing. I think her main thing is a, is a light cleric, but she's got some of that abilities in there. Uh, in terms of other sorcerers, there aren't a whole lot of examples, being that sorcerers, uh, their gimmick, at least in the Forgotten Realms standard D&D lore, they are beings with magic innate of them. They don't have to really work for it. They just have powers because they're they're lucky. They were born that way. There aren't too many really good examples of that besides multiple Targaryens and in terms of the main state characters of you know, A Song of Ice and Fire, Daenerys, I'd say just given that she's literally the blood of the dragon in a couple of different ways, she's got to be a, a dragon bloodline sorcerer. I don't know a whole lot about sorcerers. I don't think I've ever played one besides one goof-off Divine Soul Sorcerer uh, that I played once. But I'd say it's pretty arguable Daenerys's and, you know, a lot of other Targaryens. They got some draconic bloodline sorcery in there. Otherwise, I can't think of any good examples of sorcerers being that they have to have magic innate from them. All the other magical characters that we see in A World of Ice and Fire, they all studied it. Or they're cutting some sort of deal with like the Great Other, uh, quite possibly. Or maybe even like the Drowned God, whatever that might be. They're kind of doing a, a warlock situation. We'll get that into it later. There's really no innate magical people. The Targaryens, for I, I feel like a couple of different reasons, whether it be actual experimenting with blood magic, whether it be their unstable, tainted, slash like wavering, bloodline you know i feel like they've sacrificed their stability in their bloodline for kind of an innate power that has lasted for generations and generations maybe starks i guess i guess you know on the opposite side of the coin starks inherently have their abilities to do like warging uh, i guess kind of green seeing sort of i guess green seeing might be a sorcery ability brand might have some sort of you know if you squint real hard brand might be considered a sorcerer because his green seeing abilities is innate. He didn't have to work for it. But there's really no good subclass that works with that. So that's a, it's a bit of a stretch. The only solid example I can come up with is uh, are the Targaryens. Let me know if you can think of any other ones. Next example, as I was kind of hitting on before, are Warlocks. There are a couple of examples that I could really think of. The main one, I think, clearly is Euron Greyjoy. He's clearly got some great old wand. <laughs> great old wand. Uh, the great old one packed magic going on with like a Cthulhu-esque being. I know I've listened to a lot of... My, my favorite theory episodes I've ever heard are A Song of Ice and Fire talking about uh, the Cthulhu-esque influences with the possible falling of like a new bloodstone that fell. Kind of connected to the Bloodstone Emperor of E.T., another example of some possible warlock activity. But maybe some bloodstone activity with Euron, maybe having the eye underneath his patch be like a bloodstone, and that's where he he got that from the falling meteor, and he's going to be 
doing some shit to appease the drowned god or the the great other or whoever it happens to be. That's clearly some warlock shit right there. And that's, you know, why he's one of my, quite possibly my favorite character in the entire story. Uh, I feel like other people would agree he's he's pretty badass while being a despicable person. As a character, he's amazing. Uh, but no, he, he's great. Uh, you could also maybe argue Bran. Again, Bran's, Bran's a, an interesting one. He's got a lot going on. Maybe as a warlock. Uh, maybe as like a an archfey pact. Because I feel like a lot of the shit when you get into the old gods, and I, this is again uh, a theory that I kind of heard from Quinn with Song of Ice and Fire, that the old ones are more or less like like elven beings that they're super fey. Like these are actual pure old school fey beings that are like very bloody and very raw and very like not good. Not uh, kind of like an, an Eldrin, but on meth. <laughs> they um, like, like, like an elf, but a very alien elf. That's kind of how I imagine the old gods being maybe even like the green men, maybe doing some pack magic with an archfey. I could see that. And again, I think I might have mentioned a little bit before, but Arya could have some warlock shit going on in there too. Maybe she's getting some of this warlock ability from the, the many-faced god. That's a, it's arguable. The last one we have is wizard. And I think there are actually a decent amount of examples with wizards. I did mention before, Melisandre could arguably have some wizard in her if you, if you look at it from the right angle because she did have to study for some of her magical abilities. Uh, while a lot of it was granted to her in a cleric sense, a lot of it she had to work for and study to gain, which, uh, you know, by definition, that's the wizard's thing. They they didn't, they weren't born with it. It's not Maybelline. They weren't born with it. They didn't um, make a deal necessarily with anyone. And they they didn't uh, sing for it, like a bard or whatever. They, they read it in books and they learned just like the mystical art cane arts of the world of which the song of ice and fire definitely has like you have pyromancers who have definitely gone into that sort of thing i suppose you got your moon singers there are other forms of magic um i guess you know kind of an example of a of a subclass might be a divination wizard which i'm very partial to obviously because of jc lakeham's my divination wizard i played here in other episodes arguably my favorite kind of wizard there's a lot of divination that kind of comes along People don't necessarily work for it. I guess you have like Danny's the Dreamer. Uh, a couple other people have some prophecy. Uh, the Ghost of High Heart. Again, probably not a wizard. If anything, maybe more of a druid if you had to slap a label on her. But uh, there are some examples of divination and prophecy. But in terms of actual wizard characters, big obvious one would be Marwyn the Mage. He's maybe my second favorite character. I like Marwyn a lot. He hasn't gotten enough screen time yet. I really hope he gets more in Winds of Winter in upcoming works. Uh, Marwin's a total badass. He's a just a, a fucking thug wizard. <laughs> uh, stocky bulldog man who sacrifices the queer gods by the docks. He's he's my boy. I think me and Marwin would get drunk and have a good time if I ever met him. And then I'd probably end up missing my left testicle because he's going to go sacrifice it down at the docks. But a couple other examples might be Quaith. Possibly. Uh, again, we don't know a whole lot about Quaith. Maybe she's kind of getting into shadow binding territory, which might be more sorcerer. But I, a lot of, like, I guess, shadow binding, that's an art that people learn out in Shy and the Shadow in that whole mysterious area. Like, they, they study that. 
that is a thing that people can go and learn. So that's that's more, I guess, possibly getting into necromancer territory if we had to put a subclass onto it. I thought long and hard about Kyburn. He might possibly be into wizard territory, being that he studies stuff, but if we're getting off official published material from Wizards of the Coast, he might be into playtest territory with like a, an artificer, uh, maybe like an alchemist, because he's more of like a mad scientist vibe, less than actual tapping into the like magical arts. While he is arcane, I don't know if he's... It's more based in science than it is magic. But another example of wizards that I could maybe think of would be the Undying Ones. I feel like they kind of suck as wizards because they, they definitely have like a wizard's tower, which is kind of a general fantasy theme. They've definitely studied for their abilities. They, again, weren't granted them. They aren't really cutting any deals. They aren't singing for them. They, uh, they weren't born with them. They are learning them through like dusty tomes and drinking their, their trippy-ass blue shade of the evening. Uh, but now they're just kind of consigned to being shitty, dusty, old, nasty, wrinkly corpses with some illusion. And all the, I mean, they, they have a lot of prophecy too. I guess they could kind of tap into divination wizard territory, but they kind of just suck and they stay in their tower for the most part. They might walk around Karth for a bit and that's it. They don't really get to do much besides like have trippy dreams. I, I feel like they kind of got the raw end of the deal of learning magic. Those are all my examples that I could really think of. I might have had a few more that I forgot. And if you can think of some big ones that I missed, go ahead and let me know. You could probably get into the weeds with some smaller tertiary characters better than I did. Again, as I'm very much an amateur scholar of A Song of Ice and Fire lore. But there's, there could be some other big examples that I missed. And I'd, I'd love it if you went ahead and, and let me know those as well. Knights and Nerds is not just an actual play D&D podcast with an original campaign being played by a group of friends who tolerate each other. It's also a podcast where I, the Dungeon Master, talk about how I'm adapting to the choices the players make, as well as revealing to you, the audience, the complex story and deadly twists that I have in store for my players. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or at knightsandnerds.com. Now, the last uh, section I kind of want to do, probably not as long as the class <laughs> the class uh, section of the recording that I did, and ended up being a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. The last part I want to do is just kind of going over a couple of general things that are in the world building or in the lore that kind of overlap with both Dungeons & Dragons and A Song of Ice and Fire. A couple of notes that I think are kind of fun comparisons. Well, one of them being... And this is less of a 5th edition thing. I think it might have been like a 4th edition thing. I, I don't know if it's really... I, again, it's, I don't think it's a 5th edition element, but there's the idea of mythos, or maybe even called like epic magic. I think even at some point, I think it's a separate thing, but there's elven high magic. Uh, the idea that spells can be cast above ninth level, and they can be like a long-lasting permanent effect, especially with mythos. So the, the idea is that these mythos would be cast by multiple high-powered spellcasters. They would be cast at like a 10th and 11th level, I guess mechanically. Again, this is not a thing that happens in 5th edition anymore. And I believe there's even a story element to why they can't be cast above 9th level anymore. There was a, an event that happened where... Uh, man, this is me pulling from just some random YouTube videos I watched, but there was a guy, I can't remember his name. He 
cast a 12th level spell that had him usurp the mantle of the goddess of magic. I think it was called like somebody's mantle or something. And because of that, he did not comprehend the, uh, uh, you know, he, he obviously kind of fucked up and didn't realize all the things that the goddess of magic was doing to maintain the balance and fucked a lot of shit up by doing that. He did what he had to do as being the god of magic and then dropped it. And then because of the repercussions, I think the goddess of magic died, was reborn as gods are so wont to do in Dungeons and Dragons, and then made a new rule that all spellcasters can't cast spells above ninth level. So that's kind of the overview of that. But mythals back when they were a thing. And I guess if you wanted to run your own homebrew and have this be a, an option in your world, go right ahead. I think they're very, it's a very cool idea. Mythals, like I said, are being cast at like 10th and 11th level. They are maybe like a long-lasting ability. And I think the main element to mythals was that people had to sacrifice their life in order for them to affect the potency, affect the chances of it being successful, and affect like the longevity of a spell. You, you kind of maybe see a little bit of this in some spells now. I know there's a couple of like higher level spells that wizards, clerics, and even druids can cast where if you cast the same spell in the same location every day for a year, then its effects become permanent. I know there's that one, um, there's like a druid grove type spell. I can't remember the name. Like I said, didn't do any prep of like page numbers or anything, but it's like a Xanathar spell. I think the cleric also gets something similar where you get a temple. I know my high level cleric can cast that. I've never done it in game, but... Uh, it's an option, and I believe wizards get like a like a mighty fortress spell as well, where you if you cast it at this high level every day for a, a calendar year, then it becomes permanent in its location. That was kind of the idea with mythals. You get a whole bunch of spellcasters together. They cast, you know, they, they funnel as much as they can into these spells. You sacrifice a shitload of material resources, and then someone or some people probably die in order to maintain it. Now, the reason I bring this up with the World of Ice and Fire. I thought a good example of a mythal would be High Valyria at its height. You know, or I shouldn't say High Valyria, but Valyria at its height, the actual stronghold of Valyria. They were set up in the 14 Flames. Um, I've heard people call them the 14 Fires and the 14 Flames. I, I can't remember exactly what their official title are, but it seemed that um, a shitload of pyromancers were constantly having to at least it was probably insinuated. I can't remember if it was straight up said in words, but obviously Martin doesn't say a whole lot of things straight up. But from what I gather, the insinuation is pyromancers would continuously have to maintain the lava flow and like the, the direction of the the lava and the magma in the volcanoes where the, the Valyrian stronghold was maintained and located so that it you know they wouldn't get all blown up and shit. Obviously they have some sort of like innate resistance to fire, but definitely not an immunity. To fire dragons don't have an immunity to fire they're they're pretty good in the fire but one can imagine the the full might of a volcano you know especially with 14 of them could kill them so they had pyromancers uh protecting them maybe changing the direction or the the nature of what's going on there so they can maintain their super high magic uh kind of dragon lance e civilization in that location and i know that obviously the doom happened uh, I, a lot of people suspect, and I definitely subscribe to this, thinking that quite possibly the the first beginnings of the Faceless Men had maybe assassinated or got in, infiltrated and affected the magic users, the pyromancers working there. What I essentially believe is a mythal to uh, keep the Valyrians 
doing their thing, doing their high magic. It's very reminiscent to, uh, I believe they're the Nithorese in D&D lore, the city or whatever it is of Nithil, I think, or the Nithorese. They had mythals in their uh, society actively working where if you were like in the city limits, like you could just like fly if you wanted to, or people could just cast cantrips at will. Uh, they were thrown on a shitload of high magic, very available to anybody. And if you're just in that location, just people would have magical innate abilities or auras would be affected. And it's not nearly to that degree with Valyria, but you're kind of seeing some parallels there. Uh, the next bit I wanted to say, uh, Lady Stoneheart is clearly a revenant. That is a pretty clear one. Again, this is an example where the folks over at Wizards and Martin are pulling from actual myth. I don't think that, you know, the Martin wasn't pulling it from D&D, except, you know, original Dungeons & Dragons was around before he published uh, Game of Thrones. But again, the idea of a revenant has been around for quite some time. I don't think that they were stealing from each other in that one. That was definitely uh, both taking from ge the general fantasy lexicon. Not a whole lot to say about that, but that's definitely what they are. Also, Merlings and Squishers, clearly just like Merfolk and possibly like Kuatoa. You got your Merfolk and your Merlings. That's a, you know, mermaids. That's a pretty obvious one. It's pretty apparent that some form of Merlings more than likely exists in the world of Ice and Fire. I, 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 I am really holding out hope that Varys might be like part merman. That'd be pretty great. Even if it's just a little tiny hint and that it's possible, I like to believe that that might be a, a real thing. I just like that idea a lot. But like, I always kind of assumed that Squishers and Kuatoa were like the effectively the same thing. Not so much much like a, a humanoid up top and a fishy fish in the bottom, but like a, a being with like a fish head and slick body and they're sticky and they're kind of nasty and gross. And they are obviously worshiping like a Cthulhu-esque higher being. Side note, whenever I think of a Kuatoa, I can only imagine what they are in uh, the Neonomicon, a graphic novel made by Alan Moore, that if anybody wants to be seriously disturbed and fucked up for a while, go read it. But unless you're not a masochist, don't. And Because I, I read that not knowing what I got myself into. And it was very, it was something, man. It was, it was something. Neonomicon, Alan Moore, really fucked up. And I can only imagine that the, the people of Toad Isle, I think it is, are uh, having a very similar situation with gigantic fish penis that was going on in Neonomicon. I believe it was the people of Toad Isle who are clearly being like bred against their will with with those beings. Next, uh, giants. That's a pretty clearly, it's a, it's a clear one. I, I'm actually kind of, a, I'm trying to avoid some really obvious ones like both have dungeons and both have dragons. But uh, well, with giants, there are actually multiple types of giants. That's very clear in Dungeons and Dragons. There are a bunch. Uh, I think there are five. You know, your your hill giants, your frost giants, stone, cloud, storm, and fire. You know, like six. But in World of Ice and Fire, little known fact, there are stone giants mentioned over in the Essos territory. I can't remember exactly what location in Essos it's mentioned, but they were uh, they had found bones of what I believe they even called them by name stone giants in a location. I don't think that there are any accounts of living ones now. Just but again. You get a whole lot of this in a world of ice and fire, and pretty much all of the story that you have the device of the unreliable narrator. The narrator even says in a world of ice and fire that standard giants, which I would argue are like hit more along the lines of hill giants or frost giants, 
in the D&D lens that you get above the wall. They're all dead, but we know that's not true. There are living giants yet uh, in the story. So I guess I just wanted to say that there are multiple kinds of giants, which is a lot of, I think a lot of people who are more casual fans of Song of Ice and Fire don't know. And that's a, a really cool line that you get there in the World of Ice and Fire. Next, there are wyverns, which there are definitely wyverns, which is a kind of like a type of draconic being in uh, Dungeons and Dragons and wyverns in uh, World of Ice and Fire. Uh, I think they're in Essos, but they're, all, they're definitely heavily talked about in like a, the Sothorio section of the World of Ice and Fire. And they kind of break down different types of wyverns. Some of them are like more lazy ground-dwelling wyverns. Some of them are more flying type. But then those are the, the really creepy, silent, black ones that are very deadly and kind of do like a, an assassination ambush attack, which are very fun. So uh, wyverns is very, very cool. I also want to make a mention with a connection to falling stars and warlocks. Deep space astrological bodies are a, are a thing in Dungeons and Dragons. It's not so much mentioned, I don't think, now in 5th edition, but from what I understand, there are different warlock spells like Armor of Agathis. Agathis is like a star in the sky, and there's a bit of a connection with that just in the general warlock motif that we're definitely seeing also in the World of Ice and Fire. You got the Bloodstone Emperor uh, who worshipped a black stone that fell from the sky. Bloodstone Emperor is definitely one of my favorite elements in the entire story. I think he's badass. A very, very cool thing that George is doing there. You, then you can kind of get into like the Yellow Emperor uh, that's hanging out there, I think, in Lean. He's not in UT anymore, but you're kind of getting some uh, Yellow King territory there, which is another Lovecraftian idea. But long story short, Falling Stars to Warlocks is like a... That's a thing in both Dungeons and & Dragons and A World of Ice and Fire. Both kind of squared away and hidden away squirreled away in both of the uh, the stories, but the, it's a thing. Um, I mentioned this before when I was talking about Archfey and Archfey Pact of the Warlocks, but I, I, I'm i kind of under the subscription that the old gods in the world of Ice and Fire are more of your, uh, like, very alien but fey elves, um, Eladrin kind of beings. Maybe, maybe you got your, uh, what are they... Uh, but this Queen Titania, uh, that's another kind of like Dresden thing that Jim Butcher is borrowing from some real world lore. If I ever do a Dresden video, I'll get into that more as well. But or a Dresden podcast, not a video. Yeah, Fey beings and Arch Fey are like equivalent to the old gods. Again, that's that's not like book canon, but I know that there's a lot of people who subscribe to that idea, and I'm definitely one of them. Now we're getting close to the to the end of the rope here of my ideas. Great old ones and Starborn. Uh, I think that there's some illusions uh, with that, not illusions, but illusions, some parallels being drawn with that and the Church of Starry Wisdom. That's kind of going back to what I said not too long ago about falling stars with warlocks, but the Church of Starry Wisdom is definitely kind of getting into your Starborn territory. I know Starborns, not to be confused with Starburns from Community, which I've been watching a lot of, uh, again, always been one of my favorite shows, but Starborn, I think they were called, they are those weird, otherworldly kind of Great Old One-esque, or Great Others. They're, they're featured heavily in Mordekainen's Tome of Foes, I believe. They weren't in Volos. I'm pretty sure they were in Mordekainen's. They're very cool. I like them a lot. I haven't used them in a game yet, but I could try to shoehorn them in there at some point. They have a lot of interesting things going on. Uh, I think that you might be able to draw some stuff there with the Church of Starry Wisdom, gaining knowledge from beyond uh, your typical 
conventional methods that a lot of people would do in the world of ice and fire lastly i want to talk about some like strange races lizard folk aarakocra and like orcs specifically those are obviously very big influences in dungeons and dragons we even have like a lizard folk player character race uh, i guess we can even get into baxi territory too there's a little bit of a parallel with that with the world of ice and fire but lizard folk aarakocra which are the bird people that's another player character race and then you have your orcs and half orcs more player character races. I do believe, you know, there's a lot of mentions of them in the World of Ice and Fire. You have your Shrikes and even like lizard people or reptilian people. They're mentioned a handful of times. And they are located on like, or in theory, they are rumored or legend to be in the areas of uh, the far ends of the map where it's getting past the known world. Uh, I think down in Sothorios, we have legends of Shrikes and lizard folk. I think maybe up in the Grey Wastes and Essos, I think they're in there too. I think even the the Winged Men, there's like a city of Winged Men as well. They're definitely doing some Winged Folk, Aarakocra-esque parallels with that one. You know, with Orcs, this is a theory that I don't see floating around all too often. I remember, I think the original time I saw this theory, it was in the comment section of a YouTube video. I forget what the channel is called. Oh boy, what is that channel? I really like it. They do a lot of nerd videos. Civilization X. They do, they do a lot of Song of Ice and Fire, Lord of the Rings kind of things. Um, I, it was in their video on Sothorios and Uthos. Someone in the comment section said that the brindled men of Sothorios are very reminiscent of like your classical early edition D&D and getting into maybe even Tolkien-esque version of orcs. And I think mainly because they kind of have like a big underbite, lowered prominent jaw with like tusks and like a pug-like or pig-like nose. I think like, you know, a lot of people will kind of associate them with maybe the Ibanese in A World of Ice and Fire, kind of like a Neanderthal-esque. But I can see them being like a a bit of an homage to like a classic rendition of an orc. Um, I like that an awful lot. I like the idea that Martin is taking these classic fantasy races and viewing them through a lens of realism where they call them brindled men or you know, those are the weird brindled men from Sothorios. They're not going to call them orcs. Uh, they're going to, you know, call them, they're, they're going to think that they're like weird humans with tusks. I, I, I feel like he might intentionally be kind of making them uh, seem like orcs. And that might be a little bit into the weeds. That's not a very popular theory that I'm seeing at least, but maybe there are some more sympathizers with this out there. Let me know if you agree. I very much want to believe and then i kind of mentioned tabaxi the only thing i can think of there i think it was the bloodstone emperor who married a tiger woman from lean and again we don't know if a tiger woman is a part cat person uh i've I've heard some people maybe think that they're like part like whatever the sothorios essos version of a child of the forest is maybe uh kind of like getting into old gods territory because they have like the big golden eyes or something uh it's hard to say what the tiger woman that the bloodstone emperor married actually was but you know if you stand real far back and you look through the wrong end of a telescope you can maybe draw some parallels with tabaxi i guess you know you could even go into the uh the blood magic of mixing animals with people that the targaryens did they did an awful lot of that. I guess, you know, you're, you're kind of getting into mix this animal with a human. And you get a lot of races like that, obviously, in Dungeons & Dragons. But 
And lastly, I wanted to make what I believe is a connection between Valyrian steel and maybe like a plus one, plus two, maybe even a plus three weapon. I, you know, in a, in a low magic setting like this, I feel like a standard Valyrian steel blade, such as like the cat's paw dagger, maybe even ice to an extent. Um, a lot of those common household Valyrian steel items are, I shouldn't say household, but the, the houses, the great houses, uh, they'll typically have a Valyrian steel weapon. The, to me, that is actual magical steel being that it can resist the other's weapons. I can't remember if that's a show-exclusive thing or if that's in the book or not. Clearly, there is some sort of Valyrian fire magic, probably some blood magic going on in there, and I believe there's a high contingency of people, uh, myself included, that think that a blood sacrifice or maybe even the sacrifice of a life is necessary in order to create Valyrian steel. That is kind of reminiscent to me of like a plus one or maybe even a plus two weapon. If we're getting into plus three territory, like from the Dungeons and Dragons angle, uh, maybe uh, Lightbringer. Lightbringer might be a plus three. You're also kind of getting into like firebrand blades with the Lightbringer, um, obviously because it's got the fire motif going on with it. There is, um, you know, I guess you can even on that same coin, maybe even view the others' blades that we can see, like even in the, uh, the prologue of Game of Thrones, that can maybe even be a Frostbrand. Mm -hmm blade being that it has ice properties you know you can maybe kind of get into that i mean also i guess if we're going into like artifacts or even um even like you know magical items that aren't necessarily weapons there are magical horns you know we got dragon binder we have the horn of jormund and in theory the the seldom referenced kraken horn uh, there are magical horns in Dungeons and Dragons as well. You don't see them a whole lot. I don't. I think those are some magical items that don't get a lot of love and a lot of play in practicality. But I've I've been a part of a few campaigns where I've given them out. I know I played against the Giants, and I think that was a it was a bronze valor horn or whatever the fuck it was called. I can't remember. But there are magical horns in both, and you can imagine that you know both uh, Mr. Martin and Mr. Wizard they are pulling from like just the general, as I said before, fantasy lexicon of the zeitgeist of fantasy things, magical horns, yeah, you know, other there aren't a whole lot of magical artifacts or items really in the world of ice and fire. I mean, maybe like Melisandre's ruby necklace thing that could kind of be. Uh, I'm sure there's some sort of illusion necklace that has at one point existed in Dungeons and Dragons. To me, I think that the biggest draw in there would be the, the Valyrian steel being like a, a magical plus one, maybe even a plus two blade. Um, I, I think there might be even more. I, I would very much like to do an episode with someone who's very organized with this. These are just kind of general ideas that I'm throwing out there. Maybe I'll even pull up some examples on uh, like page examples from books and things like that. Maybe a more, maybe a less off the cuff type of uh, type of podcast episode. And I would love to get with some other people who do um, like amateur Song of Ice and Fire or even D&D lore to talk about this. I think that, like I said at the top of the episode, there's a lot of people who are like me who both play D&D and read a lot of nerd books. And we kind of view both of those properties through the lens of themselves. Uh, I think it's a very fun thing to do. And I, I'm definitely not the only one who does that. So if you have anything you want to mention with that, go ahead and let me know. Hit me up through whatever you want to on Twitter. We are 
at rules lawyers and the last letter is a Z, not an S. Uh, you can also even comment on our video and I'm sure I'll see it. Or uh, I keep saying video. I've been listening to a lot of YouTube stuff that are videos and I'm, I'm kind of in that mindset. But no, this is a podcast. If you comment on the podcast, I'm sure I'll see it and I'll be happy to get a hold of you. Uh, you can also get a hold of me on my personal Twitter, even though I hardly use it. I am at Wacky Donkers, <laughs> uh, a name I'm very proud of and I'll, I'll never change. And also hit me up on the Little Gray Boy Podcast Network. I can always throw a link to our Twitter on that one as well. Thank you very much. Hopefully this little solo discussion episode wasn't terrible and I might do more in the future. And I would like to do more of these comparing nerd books through D&D as well going forward. Maybe some Dresden, probably some Brandon Sanderson. Uh, definitely Rothfuss. Rothfuss is a pretty easy one. We only have the two main books to work with, but I, I guess there's a set date. There's a, there's a release date set from what I heard sometime in 2020. I'm not holding my breath, but you know. What better way to end a podcast where I, I, I bitch about Patrick Rothfuss. So thank you, everybody. And hopefully you enjoyed this. Let me know if you have anything to add to it. Peace out. And as always, I will end it unceremoniously by saying I love you all. Goodbye.